I was away two Sundays, and the last Sunday morning that I was here, I dealt with the, the topic, is the church getting used to the horror of abortion? And usually, about annually, I'll, I'll speak on that topic. This is a subject related to it, but coming at it from a, from a different angle. I'm calling this Precious in His Sight. Hope-filled promise for aborted, stillborn, and miscarried babies. Because it's not enough for the church just to speak out about what it's against. The Bible does that. But when you take God's word seriously and and study what it says, you find that in addition to uh, pretty blunt talk about sin and the pursuit of righteousness, when you take all of God's word seriously, it's abundantly full of hope. God's, God's warnings and God's rebukes always, always come with hope attached. And so when you embrace all of God's word, there's guidance for righteousness and there's hope for tragedy. The word of God always does more than just shine light into the moral issues of the day showing right from wrong. It it brings healing, it brings freedom, it brings hope to those who feel they may never be fully alive again. I don't do it very often, but I want to offer biblical hope for three situations. Maybe you've been in one of these situations. Surely you will know someone who will encounter one of these situations. First, there's hope for those who may have already had an abortion. There has to be more than condemnation. My heart goes out to those who have made the tragic mistake to take the life of their preborn child. And perhaps the more they think about it, this isn't always the case, but perhaps the more they think about it, the longer they live with it, the more they begin to ask, what have I, what have I done? And perhaps out of fear of an uncertain future, a life full of difficult circumstances, or the pressure of some pro-choice organization, they rushed into what they thought would be a a manageable solution to a really ugly situation. It wasn't all that long ago, right here in this church, a lady spoke to me. And she talked about the guilt she'd carried for years for what she's done. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to preach this message. The Word of God also offers hope for people who planned and prepared and prayed for a baby they never got to keep. There's a particular pain in remembering babies who were stillborn or babies who lived for only a few hours and they seemed to just have barely arrived and then they were gone. Does the Bible address this? Do we have more to cling to than just our desperate sort of private wishes? third situation in a church like ours there are many parents who long for a baby only to discover that 
at two or three months or weeks, they miscarried. And they're left feeling broken and unexplainably, but at times even still feeling somewhat guilty. They can't stifle the questions, did I do something wrong? Was this an act of God? Should I get my hopes up again ever? This is, this is, this is where life takes us. Is there anything directly from the scriptures that speaks to these delicate, painful issues? That's what I want to look at today. Point number one. It's one thing, as we did in that message earlier, to talk about the fact that life in the womb is real personhood. What I'm saying in point number one is slightly more than that. Life from the moment of conception, is permanent life. It's not just life. It's not just human life. It's permanent life. The text I want to look at is Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll read verses 35 through 44, and then I want to just touch on verse uh, 56 as well. Luke chapter 1, 35 to 44. You'll know this story. It gets dug up frequently around Christmas time, but there's something else here that I want to look at this morning. I'll just read the text, then I'll talk about it. Luke 1.35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, this is to Mary, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And we're given this little detail. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. What did you bring to church this morning? Nothing will be impossible. God. 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary rose, went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb. It's Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. She says this to Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy... And Mary remained with her about three months. So he had six months. Mary stays three, returns to her home. Now there are, I think, some important, easily missed details in this account. At the same moment, the angel announces Mary's supernatural conception. Mary is told that Elizabeth is in her six-month 
of pregnancy with John. That's in verse 36. Mary goes to see Elizabeth. And Elizabeth recognizes that Mary is carrying the Lord, verse 43, in her womb. I'm not making it up. That's just what it says. Mary then stays with Elizabeth three months until John is born, 56. So those are some of the details. Question. Just how far along was Mary in her pregnancy when Elizabeth called Mary's baby her Lord, 43? I mean, the text says, we don't know everything, but the text says that that Mary arose and went immediately to see Elizabeth in those days, 39. In other words, Mary went to see Elizabeth just as soon as the angel told her of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She just went. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because it clearly shows the dignity of persons in the womb much earlier in age than when the vast majority of Infants are aborted and some are miscarried. So while Mary was only days pregnant, while that little divine life in her womb was just a smaller cluster of cells, Elizabeth called the preborn baby Jesus her Lord. 43. Think about that just for a minute. His lordship is established while he would fit inside of a thimble. His lordship is declared while he would fit inside of a thimble. Elizabeth called the life in Mary's womb Lord at a time when, especially in those days, apart from the words of the angel, Mary may not have even known she was pregnant. It was the Lord she was carrying. I'm pointing that out not to infuse guilt to those who have had an abortion. That really was a person, you know. That's not it. Nor to increase the remorse of those who have had a miscarriage. I say it to instill Hope. I say it to establish the fact of a genuine, permanent life. The permanent life of those who have been aborted or miscarried or stillborn. Not only was that a life in the womb long before birth, it continues. It continues with the same eternal significance as all Life continues after departure from this world. There's no difference. Life once conceived is permanent life. That child, regardless how small or how early in development, that child still lives. Its young life had an early departure but its life has not been undone. There's a real message of hope for all of us here. A, there's hope for the mother of that miscarried 
baby. That child did not slip into oblivion just because it slipped from the grip of the mother's womb. Neither its size nor its age determine its significance and its worth. Please hear me. The process of conception is never for nothing. Did everybody hear it? The process of conception is never for nothing. Never measure the value nor the meaning of that life by the unfulfilled dreams you had for it because of its early departure. God establishes persons. God owns persons. God has his eternal purpose and plan for all life and nothing will prevent it being unfolded in his presence. B, there's hope for the mother of an aborted baby in this text. Please get this. There is more to enjoy than just forgiveness for past sins. As serious as that sin was, there's also hope because that small, apparently snuffed out life is still vibrantly alive before the Lord. That little boy or that little girl is still the Lord's. Your sin didn't undo God's highest call on your baby's life. You may still feel regret, but your sin hasn't wiped out that child's eternal joy in the presence of Father God. See, there's hope for those grieving parents of a stillborn baby. Remember this as you work through the feelings of being so cruelly, seemingly permanently robbed of that dear son or daughter. That that, that parting, though early, isn't eternal see your offspring again. We had very close friends in uh, Saskatoon, the church where I served before coming here. Got together with them a lot. And uh, they got married later, especially he was a bit older. And uh, the excitement that we would share and talk about when, when she was pregnant. And uh, John owned a business in Saskatoon, and, and uh, they got everything ready in the house. You see where the story's going, the nursery, the everything else. And I remember getting the phone call to go up to the hospital, and first John was on the phone, and he said, we... Gail had the baby, but it died. Up to the hospital, middle of the night. And the only thing more gloomy than hospital visits is hospital visits in the middle of the night. You walk down the hall, most of the lights are out. There's not much going on. And down at the end, light coming from one room. And I walked in, and there's John and Gail. I can remember talking about this idea. 
how do, how do we know there's hope for those grieving parents of a stillborn baby? How do we know we will meet in heaven? Where do we find some scriptural hope for meaningful reunion when life is taken so young? I've long taken comfort, and I want to explain this verse because I know it gets interpreted in different ways, and I don't want to be careless with it. But I've long taken comfort from David's profound words at the death of his son in 2 Samuel 12, 23. 2 Samuel 12, 23. And his son is dead. They're, they're, they're confused that now that the baby has died... David seems to be coming out of it. He's eating. He's cleaning himself up. Life is moving on. And they can't understand what's going on in his heart. And David says, now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? Of course, no. I, I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. The question, of course, when David says, I shall go to him, what, what does he mean? And, and the reason it's difficult is because the issue of translation is a difficult issue. What do you do when you have a Hebrew word that has three or four different English equivalents? I mean, you can't be dishonest about that. One word can, can be legitimately translated two or three different ways. And so all sorts of scholarly commentaries will point out that there's no way of knowing for sure what David meant here, did he? Because it can be translated, as some modern translations of the Bible make clear, I will go to the grave. That's where the baby went, and I'm going I'm to go to the same place. It can be translated that way. The place of departed spirits. That which is unseen. That place. That's another way. How do, how do we know David wasn't just saying that? And if this were the only place we had to guess on David's view of the afterlife, well, we might not know for sure exactly what he meant. But it's not the only place. This isn't the only evidence we have. We know the grave was not David's expectation for his eternal home and future. Surely David meant more than the grave when he said, speaking about his own death, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those words mean nothing sensible at all if they don't describe some kind of living fellowship with his Lord. This is the same house of the Lord where David expected to see his departed son. So that's the first point about hope. But there's more. Point number two. So life conceived is permanent life. Secondly, no life is without meaning. This is true. This is true however brief and however undeveloped that life was in our earthly perspective. We need to find where the scriptures deal with the meaning of life in the womb, because the human tendency is to only see meaning in lives where, through the passing of years and the passing of time, we see that meaning unfold in front of us right here on earth. 
That's how we perceive the meaning of life. It's the only way we can. It's not a bad thing. But the Bible doesn't come at it from that perspective. And so you have things like Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I, I can't, of course, even pretend to unfold the mystery of all of that text. But clearly, clearly, at the very least, it carries one basic important fact. And that is that God assigned a significance to Jeremiah's life before anyone else could have ever recognized it, understood it, or appreciated it. In other words, from God's perspective, though not from ours, purpose was attached to Jeremiah before he arrived on the earthly scene. At least that much is in that text. This is God's calling for Jeremiah. God's calling for me is different, but his love for me isn't different. He is as committed to each of us as he is committed to any of us. God is committed to each of us as much as he is committed to any of us. Do you know that God loves you as much as he loved Moses? Abraham, the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, Martin Luther. Do you know your life has meaning? Do you know that God attaches that meaning to your life before you're born? We get a glimpse at this text, only a glimpse. The link between a person's prenatal life and his postnatal life. We get a peek, just a peek, at the, at the process of God's hand on a life in unbroken continuum. Death doesn't rob the life of that meaning before God, whether it happens in the womb or at age 10 or age 20 or age 90. Nothing separates us from the love of God. There's no age restriction on that verse. hope to everyone. God knew the days of each of us before we were born. God knew the length of earthly life of your baby before conception ever took place. Worth isn't measured in those terms. Oh, how people wonder about their worth. I had a, a picture. I actually sent it up to the guys in the booth, but I don't think we could get it ready in time. We were walking through Times Square. Take a look to see if you see it in your email up there. But What's he doing? I'm just scrambling. Rini and I uh, went and saw Fiddler on the Roof. My goodness, what a delightful... Uh, so we leave. Now we leave the theater. We're walking through Times Square. Times Square, the busiest intersection on planet Earth. Millions and millions and millions of people daily scrambling through Times Square. Huge, huge uh, 
LED screen, you know, billboard size. I didn't see it. Rainey saw it and said, look at that. Right up at the top of the building, the most prominent thing you would ever see by the, and I have no beef with this, that's not the point, the vegan society, blah, 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 and you look up, I kid you not now, on this side there's a picture of a, I was going to say a woman, a girl, young, young woman, girl. And on this side, there's just the face of a rat. And across in big letters, it says, different, but equal. And I thought, are, are these people all, like, were they dropped on their heads or something when they were, what? Different, but equal. Do you see where worthlessness comes from? With that kind of thinking? Do you see where a sense of valuelessness comes from? People wonder about their worth. We have no control over so many things. It's a cruel world. People make big mistakes. Babies are born out of wedlock. Some are the result of rape or abuse. We need to remember the tragedy of circumstances never undo God's plan and value of life in the womb. Do you remember who Solomon's mom was? Do you remember the circumstances surrounding Solomon's conception? Solomon was called by God to build the temple, the place where he would dwell. Remember Rachel and Leah? And oh, the man of God worked so hard because he loved Rachel so much. Only he didn't get Rachel first. Is there ever a case of a guy marrying the wrong girl? He found out it was Leah. Lifted up the veil and it wasn't the right woman. What a mess. You know one of the sons of Leah? We used to sing about one of the sons of Leah in Sunday school. One of the sons of Leah was Judah. And your redeemer who died on that cross was from was the lion of Judah. Whatever the frustration, whatever the pain, the Bible says no life is a waste. No life is pasted with insignificance. Each one lasts. Each one lasts forever. Each one fits into an eternal destiny and plan. Still one more point of hope. Three. We will know each other in heaven. And now we've got a problem. When we're dealing with the death of preborn infants, babies, all sorts of questions arise. My child, Pastor Don, was miscarried as a tiny clump of cells. How will I know him or her in heaven? What's your answer there, Pastor? 
That's a hard question. I think there are several truths to keep in mind. Here's how I process this. A, the Bible teaches that in the resurrection, every person will have an actual body. The clearest evidence of this comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 42, and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. What is sown, this is the body, sown, put into the ground, like seed. It's perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So the it Paul is talking about in every sentence, the it is the body. It will be very different says Paul, but it will still be a body. It will come out of the grave. It will be an act of recreation. It will come out of the grave as the second fruits of the new creation that began with the resurrected body of Jesus. But I think there's more. There are some fascinating texts from the Old Testament as well, and here's one that I've been thinking about a lot lately as I've been thinking about the death of infants. Psalm 139 Look this up with me. My frame. This is, this is my frame, right? Not my spirit. My, my frame. The, 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 the stuff that holds skin and bones. The frame. Like the frame of a car. The frame of a house. My frame was not hidden from you and I was being made in secret. In secret is in the mom's womb, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This, this fascinates me. This, what is that? And then, the days that were formed for me, when, as yet, there were none of them. So what draws me to that text is, is the way it describes the person before any of his days were lived out on earth. When, as yet, there were none of them. No history to this life yet. And so here we have a glimpse, just a glimpse, at some kind. I know there's poetry there, but, but there's some kind of, of glimpse at the pre-born. And that fits with our subject. And it's talking about his frame, so it's talking about the body. But before it's all put together... And then there's that fascinating link with this talk about God's book. Your eyes saw my unformed, it's not put together yet, my unformed substance, so it's stuff, not spirit, not soul, in your book were written. So the the physical part now, everything that's going to develop, color of the hair, the eyes, the teeth, height. 
These things were all written, it says. In your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. Now, I don't know what that book is all about. Let me give you my two cents. It was in the 50s that they began to discover that the whole blueprint of every life was contained in those double spirals of DNA in every single cell. And that message, that book, contains the total encoded description of all that that physical life will ever become and look like. It's it's pre-recorded. In other words, what science has discovered is that God has set aside, stored up, recorded, written down. Now, we're talking about how we will recognize each other in heaven, right? That's what we're talking about now. We'll know each other in heaven. Just remember, this is the third point. So God has set aside, science has discovered, God has set aside, stored up, written down, what your little miscarried, aborted, or stillborn child would look like at 15, 28, 69. He can provide that person with the proper body, and we know this is true because he would have done so anyway had that child lived out his days right here on earth. It's all pre-planned, pre-recorded. B, under this third point of recognizing each other in heaven, there will be a different kind of recognition in heaven. Now again, details can be sketchy, but they're not non-existent. Matthew 17, 1 to 5. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, what Matthew doesn't point out or discuss is this interesting fact, it's kind of on the side of the story, that Peter had never seen Moses or Elijah in his whole life. I made this point in my Christian ed class once, and someone came up after and said, well, Pastor, no, it's not that much of a mystery. Jesus, you know, when, when, when Matthew was recording this, they probably came down from the mountain, and Jesus explained to them who these two people were. And that won't work. That won't work because what Peter says, while they're still on the mountain, so this isn't later, while they're on the mountain, Peter says, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter knows they're Moses and Elijah while they're standing up there on the mountain. 
Moses and Elijah have been dead for centuries. Peter can't Google what they look like. And yet instantly Peter knows who they are. Somehow, it seems, there will be a fuller way of knowing things in heaven. I love 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It's a shame we only read this at weddings. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. The face-to-face, we get it from the hymn, face-to-face I shall behold him. It isn't just talking about Jesus. Face-to-face, instantly knowing, fully. The identity of Persons won't be the problem there. It frequently is here. You ever have that happen? You walk up and somebody knows you and you know you're supposed to know them. Hey, how are you? Are you still doing that stuff you do? You know? That won't be a problem in heaven. That won't be a problem. Can I do one more point? All right. Four. I wanted to touch on this. What about the fact that all children are born in sin, needing redemption? What in the world makes you think, Pastor Don, that they're with the Lord? And here I give my views for your consideration. The problem that arises from our theology is this. We believe in what theologians call original sin. I believe in it passionately. That is, we believe that apart from God's grace, all are, as the Bible clearly states, conceived in sin. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful, the prophet says. And so, how can infants born in sin be considered somehow safe with the Lord. And some theologies, I feel, have particular problems here. Uh, there's a common teaching that before the world was created or at some point after the fall, God pre-selects a specific number of people. They're the elect. They get salvation. Jesus didn't die for everyone. He just dies for the elect. And of course, if that's the case, that's a, that's a tricky issue. Most Calvinists will tell you what, what, what it boils down to, whether it's John Piper or John MacArthur, um, most what their position boils down to, and I took two weeks in my Christian ed class, I'm not doing it this morning. The only answer they come up with is that God only allows um, elect babies to die. So all babies go to be with Jesus, but that's because God doesn't let non-elect babies die. If you can live with that, then fine. I think there's a better way. I think the Bible offers a rich approach, and it's found in Romans chapter 5. And if you can put your theologian cap on just for the last 10 minutes, would you do that for me? Romans chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. 
I put great weight behind Romans 5. We should look at more verses than this, I will admit, but we just can't. 15 and 16, Paul says, But the free gift, it's the gift of grace through Calvary's cross. The free gift is not like the trespass. That's he's talking about Adam and Adam's sin and the fall which affected all of us. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass. And by the way, how many people were affected by the fall? 100%. Absolutely everybody. That's Paul's point. It's extensive. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Paul's point is that there's a there's a coextensiveness to the effects of Adam's sin and the grace that comes through Christ's cross. How many people are affected by Adam's sin? All. Now, I believe what Paul is saying is all are also affected by Christ's cross. He doesn't mean everybody's saved. What he does mean is that everyone, everyone who ever draws a breath on this planet is covered by the redemptive grace of the cross just as they were all affected by Adam's sin. They are covered by grace until with their own will the fall manifests itself in choices against the will of God. Of course, babies can't do that. They are not sinless. They are covered. Behold the wonderful worldwide extension of God's grace. Never make the power of the cross less than the power of Adam's sin. Never make the reach of the cross less than the reach of Adam's sin. It is my view that there is a universal effect through the cross of Christ. I don't mean that everyone is saved. I mean that everyone is reached with sovereign, prevenient, resistible grace which enables all people to respond to further forms of grace. In other words, the atonement reaches all peoples until they responsibly reject God's grace. In other words, again, everyone who is saved is saved by grace. None make it by their own free will. All wills must be freed by sovereign, prevenient, resistible grace. No one is lost by divine decree. Let me say it this way. To me, if Romans 5 teaches anything... It teaches that the work of Christ Jesus on the cross is just as extensive in spreading grace as the sinful work of Adam and Eve was in spreading sin and guilt. This is a huge thought, church. It is a huge thought. It means that through the prevenient, means it comes before we do anything. It starts everything. Prevenient, resistible grace. 
of the cross is just as original to all people as original sin. It's not irresistible grace, but it is effective grace, genuine grace. Infants are safe with Jesus, not because they were not conceived in sin, nor because God overlooks their sinful nature, but because in his sovereign, powerful, resistible grace, he has provided for all to be saved. That shouldn't surprise us. In the cross, God has clearly revealed his genuine will to reach everyone. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. How many people? All people to be saved. And come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God... There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The desire to save is God's real desire. It is not a limited desire or a fake desire. It is not some powerless wish. It is not an empty preference. And God doesn't just talk about this desire to save all. His prevenient, resistible grace is just as extensive reaching into every heart as the spread of original sin. God says so. He has powerfully, sovereignly done something to save all. Through Christ's effective death on the cross, grace is automatic for all infants. Not because they're sinless, but because they need it. Praise God for his provision. For all the babies who, for whatever reason, have an early flight from this earth, that they never slip from God's grace, God's care, that they have an identity, they will have a body that everyone will know and recognize. Ours is a good God. And there's a biblical reason for believing that, not just an empty wish. And everyone said...